thank you, Lenny Trio. Yeah, good to be good to be here in the Lord's house with you today. Great to be here in worship with you. And uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of us might have uh, various memories about worship and things like that. Now, for some of you, maybe this is the you know, first time that you've been back here uh, since COVID broke out, and you've been worshiping in other ways. Maybe uh, hopefully worshiping online with us. In fact, we've got an awful lot of people worshiping online with us. So, greetings to those of you who are doing so today. And, uh, you know, for me, when I look back, uh, I grew up in a family where uh, worship was really important. And, and it was something that we would do every Sunday as an expectation. I, I oftentimes tell young families who are uh, starting out with kids, and, hey, you know, if you want to make sure that your kid never gives you, I shouldn't say never, but really almost never gives you a hard time about going to worship and make it mandatory. You know, when you make it optional, that's when they'll give you a hard time about it, you know. Uh, so we we did that, and 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 uh, growing up, uh, let's take a look at this one here. This is this picture of me when I was a little kid with two of my sisters. Now, you know, for some of those of you who uh, were born in the last decade or so, you might look at that and think that must be 1927 or something. But um, you know, it wasn't quite that long ago. But this was a, uh, I think, an Easter Sunday when uh, my parents had this sadistic group and thought they'd stand us in the bright sunlight. And take a picture. So, you know, winter into the sun here, kind of like this morning when driving to church and the sun is shining in, in, in my eyes. But, um, you know, we would, we would go to church really every week. It was a different age. My dad was a church organist, so, you know, there was times, for example, when we would sit in the pew. Uh, the organ, I remember in this particular church, was up in the balcony. We'd sit in the pew right next to the organ, and, uh, you know, try to be good. And, and, and yet there was this one Sunday, and the third sister that's not picture was, I think she was too young in that picture, but uh, uh, we would sit in this row, and, and uh, this one Sunday we stood up, and the pew was not screwed to the floor. So uh, we, we all stood up at the same time, we snapped the pew over on top of us. <laughs> it kind of riveted people's attention in the wrong place on, on, on that Sunday. But worship is something that, you know, um, when you look at a... a uh, uh, you picture like that, and you can see that, you know, times have changed. <laughs> Not only, you know, styles and things like that, but times have changed. It used to be really popular to go to worship, and these days, not so much so. Uh, and I wonder if maybe one reason for that is because we really haven't talked enough about worship. You even know what it is that we do with you. You know, we gather together, we sing these songs, you know, what's, what's, what's the deal? What, what in the world is this worshiping all about? Well, last week we began this new sermon series here uh, that's called First Matter. And we're in this series now because really we can see Satan's plan. We can see Satan's plan here. And his plan is to separate off the sheep from the flock, to isolate Christians from one another. It's important to rediscover what it is that is so important about the church, about being together, whether it's virtually together or in person together, what's so important about being the church? So, you know, we, we look at this, and, and I think an important question for us to start in the front end, here's the second week of it, the front end, is to focus on what is most fundamental to Christians, the most fundamental practice that Christians do is to worship. You know, you, you look at various activities that people do that identify them uh, and that activity, golfers golf, swimmers swim, Christians Christ, well, you know, something like that. 
Actually, Jesus did model worship because Jesus went to worship and he, 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 he worshiped regularly. And if we see that, you know, the goodness of Jesus when we say that we're Christians, that means we're Christ followers, we do what Jesus did, which is to worship. In this case, worship Christ. Now, worship is oftentimes thought of in, in really merely religious terms. But there are other examples of worship as well, you know, of things that we might look at. But, for example, in, in the fall here, you know, the, the colder weather, the, the, the colors are starting to change, you know, things like that. And normally we would, you know, expect, especially on a Saturday, to see some footballs flying that aren't flying. You know, we've got the stadiums that normally are filled with like, the capacity of people who are cheering on their favorite team. So the big house here on the Wolverines, the East Lansing, and here on the Spartans, and things like that. And it seems strange not, not to have that happen. But normally what will happen is that people will gather together in their favorite sports venue and cheer on their team. What they're doing when they do that is a form of worship. Now, it's not worship that competes necessarily, but it has to, sometimes it does, but it helps to compete with our worship here, worship of the Lord. But it is an example of what we mean by worship. Worship is, and this is a great definition for worship, worship is outwardly honoring someone or something. And I emphasize outwardly because these days, people, when it comes to uh, the religious belief, they, they think that it's all inward. You know, if I just think certain things about God, then that's really the same part But worship, and, and, and that's why I think a lot of people don't get worship, because worship is outward. No, worship is outwardly honoring someone or something. Fans honor their team, for example, with their time that they took to go to the game. Fans honor their team with their money that they spend to buy a ticket or to pay for that overpriced hot dog at the stadium. Fans honor the team with their voices and with their body language in the stadium by cheering them on. All this is outward. Fans might honor the team with by doing the wave or by chanting, Jesus! Or, get the ball! You know, even things like that can be wrapped up into worship because it's this interaction, this encouragement, this, this, this uh, you know, trying to you know, get the team to, you know, perform or whatever it might be. They're honoring their team with all of these kinds of things. In the same way, those who worship God honor God by their worship of Him. They're saying, way to go, God. God, you are great. God, your love endures forever, God. Now, as with sports fans and team, Christians honor God with their time by taking some time out specific time to spend in worship of Him. They honor Him with their money that they give to Him in offering. As a sports fan, their voices and their body, their body language of Christians who come to worship, uh, they, they do things like singing or, or maybe speaking certain things. They, the purpose of those things is to honor Him. Worship is by definition showing outward honor to someone or something. Christian worship matters because of this. Because of the one who is worshipped. Because the one who is worshipped is also the creator, the author of life. The one who is greater than all else that exists by very definition. 
because we worship matters because we worship God. We honor God. Those who worship God honor Him. It's the most fundamental act of a Christian that identifies who we are and what our relationship is with God. It identifies you as a Christian. So today we talk about Jesus. He tells a story. With a story, he tells us that worship is a party. It's a party. And it's a party to which you are invited. He says this in the story from Matthew chapter 22. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his friends. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. Now, right there, the story should, should kind of grab you by your lapels because what we're talking about here is the king. The king has invited you to a party. But they refused to come. Why did they do that? This is the king. The king had all power. As money calls on said, it's good to the king. He had the power to tax you, to imprison you, to take away your livelihood, and to even take away your life. It's wise to honor the king. To dishonor the king is either foolish or stupid. Yet that's exactly what the people who were invited did. They dishonored the king by refusing to come. An invitation to the wedding of the king, wedding of the king's son, rather, would be a great honor that isn't extended to everybody. And yet these people, these people didn't recognize it as being the honor that it was. Or at least they didn't want to honor the king back. To turn down that invitation is a dishonor to the sender who is the king. Which, even if you didn't like parties, even if you thought that you had just two left feet, would not be a wise thing to do because, after all, this is the king. And there's two weddings over the last, I don't know, number of decades that kind of stand out, I think, that could be examples for us about what it might be like or might have been like to be invited to a wedding like this. And uh, you know, for some of us, maybe we were alive at that time, and others of us, maybe it's more a matter of reading about it. But one of, the, one of those weddings would have been the wedding of Christian Nixon back in 1971. She was uh, the daughter of Richard Nixon, married in, uh, I think it was the Rose Garden outside of the White House. And it riveted the nation at the time, and you know, it was a big deal. I and mean, if you're invited to that, that would be a special event. And the, the other wedding would be even a bigger deal uh, in, in the world, and that would be the wedding of Princess Diana and Prince Charles in the 80s. Now, if you were invited, let's say you were invited to that wedding of Princess Diana and Prince Charles, would you go? I mean, most people would recognize it as being a huge honor because very few people would be able to do that. And most people, if they got that invitation, they would say, I'm going to rearrange my schedule. I don't care what time the schedule. Um, I'm going to, you know, be tapped the savings to be able to get there, you know, whatever it might be. You know, but, but you know, it's an honor to be invited to that. You got Yet, in this particular situation, which is an even bigger wedding than either one of those, the invitee said no. No, I'm just Still, the king said grace and said mercy by giving them the benefit of the doubt. 
He said that in Matthew chapter 22, verse 4. He said, then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat and cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. And went on, and he was sealed and others were given. The rest of the servants just treated them and killed them. The king is saying, maybe they misunderstood the first time. I know they said no, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's get more specific with them. Okay, the wedding is, is, is ready. The, the, the food is ready. Everything's in place. All of these, and in response to the details, what happened was the invitees gave them more detailed excuses. Not to do that. They had no plan. They had things to do with people to see. But some of them found the time to beat up his messengers and even kill some of his messengers. Why would they do that? Because they wanted to go out of their way to disarm the king. So now it's judgment day. The king sent his army and he destroyed their livelihood. He destroyed the city. He destroyed their excuses. He took the veil away. Then he sent out more messengers to invite the very people that these first people that were invited would have thought to be unworthy. He invited them to come to the wedding feast instead, and they came. And they filled the wedding hall, and they had a party, and celebrated the wedding of the son. This party is a picture of worship. Now, it might sound kind of egocentric to some people for the king to actually expect people to show up at the wedding. Uh, as an honor to himself and to his son. But that honoring him with their presence is something that demonstrated what they thought about the king, what they thought about their relationship to the king. Those who said no were saying that the king meant nothing to them. Those who said yes and went were saying that the king, this one, was truly their king. The story that Jesus is telling here is a story that points to the end of time. So we then can look at the book of Revelation, which talks about the end of time, and there see this glimpse into heaven and see what takes place in heaven. Now, there are times when I'll, I'll preside at a funeral and, and people are doing what they should do at the funeral, which is to honor the deceased. But it may say something that's a little strange, something like, oh, Uncle Bob, he's in heaven bowling right now. And everybody there knows that Uncle Bob uh, really couldn't stand to spend an hour in, in this life of Jesus, and much less in, in worship. And when we look at something like this and see that what happens in heaven, when we look through this doorway that's open into heaven, what's happening there is worship. That's what's happening there. And it's, it's an amazing picture. And in Revelation, what, what happens, and it's sort of study, by the way, in Revelation, and join us on Wednesday nights if you want. Um, but in, in, in Revelation, what it does is it takes these images, these strong images, and use those to communicate things to us. Meaning, messages, and what God wants to say. And here is this image of God Himself seated on the throne. He's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And gathered around God are all of these heavenly beings, but even more specifically, gathered around God is the church. And then there's these four creatures. He calls them the four living creatures. And they're these strange beings that look like different things. And that's the reason. But what's really strange about these four living creatures is the them as having eyes all around them. And the front and the back, under the knees, everywhere are eyes. 
which is kind of a grotesque image of these four living creatures. But it's trying to say something. And, and God must be focused. What are eyes used for? It's a seed, right? So this means that the four living creatures, the significance here is that the four living creatures can see what was, and they can see what is and what is to come. They can see clearly instead of having their vision obscured. They're not blind in any capacity. They can see truly what happened in the past, what's happening now, and what's happening in the future. They can see what God has done in the past, what God is presently doing, and what God is going to do in the future. And in response to this, what do the four living creatures do? Because they can see clearly. Because nothing obscures their vision. They worship. That's what they do in response to it. They honor God because they can see clearly what God is up to and what God is doing. And they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Imagine having that kind of vision. Imagine being able to look back and see God's fingerprints in you. The things that you didn't see before. The things where you wonder, is God even there? And there you look down and you can see God's fingerprints that were there all along. God's activity. And you can look around you today and instead of worrying about the things that are taking place, you can see that God is up to something. And God is working and is active. And you can look ahead and see that the future is not something to worry about either because God's got this. He's got it in His hands. He's got it in His plans. God is doing something here. He knows how the story ends. What would you do in response to that? To being able to see clearly like that? Well, what the church did is they worship. When they can see God and truly see what's going on, they worship Him, they honored Him. Now, what it is that blinds people and who keeps us from being able to see those things clearly like these four living creatures could do is this. It's pride. Now, pride is one thing that I think is easy to identify in somebody else and not so easy to identify in myself. And, and, and pride, what that is, is, is not, you know, sometimes people think of humility as being, you know, beating up on myself or something, but that's not it at all. What it is is seeing clearly, seeing God for who He is and seeing me for who I am. You know, it's it seeing things clearly. But pride obscures vision. It says that I can make this face thing up as I go along. Pride says that the king really is nobody, so why go to the party? Pride says I can come up with whatever excuses I want to. You know, and they're going to sound reasonable. So in response to what they see the four creatures doing the church in Revelation chapter 4, there's this. It says they lay their crowns before the throne. And they say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. When you worship, and you really worship, I'm not just talking about coming up, I'm talking about really worship. When you really worship, what happens is you lay your crown at Jesus' feet. What's the crown? What's the crown you lay at Jesus' feet? The one that, that, that all of us have to lay at His feet is that crown. That says that I'm going to keep you at arm's length, God. You know, I'm going to maintain control and give you lip service and that, and, and try to fool myself and not be able to see what really is happening here. 
pretty amazing God that you just see and worship and surrender. Lord, I give up rebellion against you. I can see clearly now that you really are my king. I will follow Jesus too. And I will show who he really is to me. And that's worship. It's pride that leads people to reject him today. It's pride that led the people in that day to reject him. And, and what they did, the way that they showed up was in three particular things, three particular ways. They're calling their attention and their approval. Which gets us to what we actually do in worship. Sometimes a person can go through the motions of worship without really worshiping. You know, we can show up here. I've got to admit, you know, there are times when I'll be singing a song in worship. And by the end of the song, I think, what the world did I just sing? You know, maybe, maybe I was focused on the words of the song, or not the words of the song, but singing the song. If I focused on the words, that would be an improvement. But I was thinking about something else, and maybe my mind was a million miles away or something like that. And, and at the end of that song, I said, man, what the world did I just sing? I mean, you can show up at worship and not worship. That's possible. But as the old saying goes, half of women is just showing up. Because if you don't show up, <laughs> you're not even in the game. But real worship is spending quality time with God. Quality time is one of what is called the five love languages, which are these five love languages that have been identified as ways that we can communicate love to the special people in our lives. And quality time is something that is not to be confused with quantity time. In other words, you can take a parent, for example, who works long hours, but when that parent is home, the parent is fully engaged with his children, fully engaged with his spouse. You know, fully present. And quality time is somebody who cares enough about the other person to actually listen to what they say. To listen to what's on their heart. Listen to what's on their mind. And something tells me here that God's love language is quality time. That in worship is the time when we can focus on Him. We can direct our attention to Him, being fully present with Him. But many aren't fully present in worship because we're seeking approval from other people instead of recognizing the approval they have from God. Just look around you today and see how many people are doing certain things or saying certain things to avoid being called certain names. Or doing certain things or saying certain things so that they can fit in with the inside or at least not be rejected by the inside. Approval matters, and we're talking about adults now, not middle school, okay? Worship shows, though, where you look for your approval. Is it from your neighbors? Is it from your popular culture, the popular culture out there? Or do you recognize that your approval, real approval, real approval that really matters comes from your parents, comes from God. The people in Jesus' story didn't care about the approval of the king, even though he was the one whose approval mattered the most. Well, I'm going to try something here, okay? Just, this is participatory here, all right? Because God provides so many different things, okay? So, if, by a show of hands, if you would, just raise your right hand if you, if you uh, think that, um, uh, we'll just try this one. That nourishment, whatever it is, eating, what, you know, food, nourishment, is important for maintenance and sustenance in life. Okay, is that important? Okay, raise your hand, okay? Keep it up. If you don't have your hand up, I presume that you are into starvation uh, and death, okay? So keep that hand up, okay? And uh, also, if uh, you think that Jesus might be somebody important, raise the other hand, okay? 